On today's episode, burnout, boundaries, boosting resilience, and more. Are you a leader trying to get more from your business and life? Me too. So join me as I document the conversations, stories, and advice to help you achieve what matters in your life. Welcome to Unbound with me, Chris Dubois. Gary Simmons is a retired neurosurgeon, educator, and author who has cared for thousands of patients over his decades-long career. After heading the neurosurgery department uh, and residency program at Virginia Tech, he now teaches neuroscience, healthcare, and ethics. Gary has written several nonfiction books on burnout and resilience, as well as an acclaimed medical thriller, combining his passions for neuroscience and the paranormal. Gary, welcome to Unbound. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm honored. Yes, yeah, it's good. Uh, we'll likely get into uh, your nonfiction book at some point because I am currently reading it, uh, which has been a lot of fun for a, a break from everything else that I'm <laughs> that I'm currently reading. Uh, but let's actually kick off with your origin story. Well, um, I mean, it all started. Uh, I mean, if you really want to trace things back several centuries ago, when. My family, no, I don't need to get into that for you. Um, no, uh, I guess uh, origins wise, um, I, th I think the one thing that may be a little unusual is when I headed to college, I really thought I would be ending up in the ministry. I thought I would uh, study religion and eventually uh, go into the seminary and go from there. Uh, but I always held out the possibility of other careers. And I shuffled through a bunch, including uh, going into the FBI, the CIA, being a fighter pilot, um, uh, and uh, had also thought of uh, going into medicine. Um, eventually, I, I decided medicine. Don't ask me why. I, I Somehow, the, the roulette wheel ended up there. Um, and I uh, eventually went to medical school in Rutgers in New Jersey. And um, like, I think a lot of medical students, I, I cycled again through multiple specialties, including family practice and oncology and general surgery. But I decided on um, cardiothoracic surgery and was all set up to do cardiothoracic surgery, to go into residency and learn uh, cardiothoracic. Uh, and in my last month in medical school, I saw my first brain operation and I went, oh my God, I have got to do that. Um, had to switch horses in midstream, uh, probably well past midstream actually, um, and uh, entered into a neurosurgery training program actually at Walter Reed in D.C., um, having zero idea what I was getting myself into. And man, that, that was a big bite. Um, but it, it worked out for me. And I, I used it as a tale both of caution and maybe of uh, eventually following your heart because uh, it, I, I, I keep looking back, I can't imagine doing anything else. So uh, that's it. That's my origin story. Awesome. So let's go right into uh, to burnout. And what are some of the common early kind of warning signs, I guess, that you've seen with burnout with people? Yeah, I think, you know, if you get into um, looking into burnout and get into the formal definitions, you can you can 
go through these assays that you can find online and uh, you can register in whether you're burning out or not, I suppose. Um, and, and obviously, th- there's a lot of justification behind them. But I think, uh, you know, the, the question of early burnout or what we begin to see, I think is definitely more subtle. Um, I think uh, what we notice the most, at least, um, particularly amongst our team and the people around us in the medical sphere, at least, was almost kind of a a personality change, if you will, because most people who go into medicine, I I still believe go in out of the goodness of their heart. They want to help people. They want to want to be kind and caring to people. And I'm telling you, so many hospitals are these these bubbling cauldrons of seething anger and snappiness and cynicism and biting each other's heads off. And you're like, wait a second, who are these people? I thought, you know, everybody was all loving and kind and caring and considerate. Um, and, And I truly think this is one of the signs. And I think, you know, a way to kind of I don't know, judge it in yourself is to say to yourself, you know, who am I? What am I about? What am I truly, you know, what am I truly holding on to as a person? And then imagine having a film crew secretly filming you in your days and see if those two things match up. And if if they match up, well, all well and good. But I, I would argue that for a lot of us, they don't match up. We start to fail the person that we really would like to be and the person that we kind of believe we are even uh, until we stop and think about it and say, you know, am I truly this ray of sunshine, this ray of light in everybody else's uh, world? And, and uh I'm afraid a lot of us start to fall down. And I think that may be an early sign that we just start losing the energy to to really project the person that we want to be. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it bleeds into other areas of your life. You can probably start noticing it as well, right? Absolutely. Like I, I, I think the, so my past life, I was uh, in the military and I think the place you see it the most there is with people spending time with their families and it not being the most positive of times with their families because they're under so much stress at work. Um, <clears throat> I guess, are there, do you ever like have people just look at the signs of from outside of just when they're showing up at work, doing their job of like other ways that their lives are being impacted that could you know, kind of point to, Hey, maybe you are suffering from some burnout here and we got to take a step back. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a great point, and we we try to make the point that the two are not separate separable. Um, that uh, if you're burning out at home, you're going to burn out at work, and if you're burning out at work, you're going to burn out at home. Uh, they're definitely intertwined, and you know, I in either one, I think depending which which one you're at, you may be able to put on a show. You may be able to, you know, or, or lower your head and drive, if you will, uh, get the job done and, and kind of hide it, if you will. Uh, but it will start to come out. And, may, and maybe if you're really t- keeping it in, in check in one place, it'll start bubbling over in another. But, you know, you were, we were talking about early signs. And I think 
another classic one uh, that I see a lot at work, but I think we really take this one at uh, home with us. And that is to tell stories to ourselves about the people we're with. Um, you know, they, what a, a, we create a whole story, a whole mythology behind whatever their behavior is, whatever they, whatever they're even saying to us or, or, you know, they're, they're restacking the dishwasher and we get into this long drawn out story as they're doing this because they're pissed off at us and they want to show us that they're mad at us and, and they're going to punish us uh, by doing this. We're, Really, maybe they were thinking, ah, you know, the dishes will get more clean if I stack them this way. Uh, And we do this at work all the time, too. You know, we have an interaction at work and we just immediately assume that the person is doing this for other motives than they may be. And a lot of times we're not very charitable about it. Uh, And that's a big one. I think I've seen, at least personally at, at home, where you know, I have the most loving, most wonderful wife on earth. People call her a saint for putting up with me. And and yet I tell myself all these horrible stories about why she's doing things and why she said things and why she folded the, the bed covers this way and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I think the two are very intertwined. Yeah. So I guess what what's happening in the brain, right, that starts to cause our bodies to take have these reactions to burnout? Yeah, I, I, the uh, I will have to make it up for you um, in some ways because uh, the actual solid neuroscience background to burnout is not um, is not replete. It's not. There's not tons of it. Um, it's really we're 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 really just seeing the beginnings of it. Um, for a couple of reasons, um, but but one of them is, for example, a lot of what you study in the lab in neuroscience labs, for example, um, you're doing in in animal models, usually rats and mice, and so for example, in depression and stress, there are rat and mice models. You you set them up with these you know situations of of stress and and look for their reactions and look for behaviors which resemble uh, human uh, responses to stress and human depression. And thus far, at least as far as I know, there aren't a lot of models for that. Uh, we haven't really been able to pin down uh, burnout necessarily, if you will, uh, in animal models. Um, so I guess what I would say is uh, if if I were to speculate it, we'd be de- uh, dependent on what we know happens in our brains, in animal brains uh, as well. But it's not just mice and, uh, mice and rats. It's mice and men, uh, if you will. And uh, uh, what happens in our brain in, in uh, uh, prolonged stressful situations and depressive situations is our brains go through true significant changes. And I think it's an important concept because it really will come out in what do we do about burnout. And that is, um, I, I, I like to talk about how I think a lot of people 
perceive the brain as almost like a computer where, you know, when you're being built in the factory, if you will, a whole bunch of wires get set up and they get connected and soldered together. And these wires communicate and they're all basically binary, as we know, in a computer, it's either zero or one, you either fire or you don't. Well, that's, that's what's happening within the brain as well. Um, we have lots of connections on the order of quadrillions of corrections, uh, you know, almost 100 billion nerve cells. Um, but there, I think there's a familiar thinking that they're just set up and they're they're static. That's the way they'll always be. One wire connects to another wire and 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 that's how it works. And you it couldn't be further from the truth. That wiring diagram is always changing in in us. There each each neuron has thousands of connections it makes and those connections depend on these things that we call synapses where where little bundles of chemicals get spit out on one side and get picked up on the other side. And uh, you can change how many of those chemicals are released, how quickly they're removed, how many receptors there are on the other side. Even the genes that dictate it can be changed all by what we experience and what we do through our days. So various areas of the brain are getting strengthened, their communications, their connections are getting strengthened, and various areas of our brain are getting kind of slowly shut down depending on how we use our brain and what we experience. So long story short, in a, you know, in a chronic stressful situation, for example, we start shutting down the, the pleasurable areas of our brain, the reward centers of our brain. We kind of go more into a survival mode and we, we reinforce areas that are much more, oh, aversive to bad things and, uh, and are, are related to stressful situations, fight or flight, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, whereas, you know, the areas that, that are, are usually more engaged and more thinking and more um, I, pulling in our environment start to shut down. Um, and we can see this on multiple levels. We can see it on the very, very basic molecular level, the, the uh, how the DNA gets read, how those neurochemicals are used and all that sort of thing. But we can even see them on a larger scale. Certain areas of the brain start to shrink and certain areas of the brain start to get bigger. Um, so uh, long story short, I would expect that when we see burnout, we're seeing that sort of effect going on within the brain, where we are de-emphasizing certain channels of our brain, and we are over-emphasizing kind of the more negative side uh, of our brain, if you will. Um, and I think it would, be, and there is some early evidence that it does seem to mimic depression and stress, depression, anxiety, and stress. Uh, so, I think it's a real important concept, though, to realize that it's dynamic and you can actually alter it, therefore, by what you do and what you encounter. Right. And so I imagine on some level, we're never going to be able to learn more about burnout from doing animal studies because of how much we're creating these stories and we're, we're increasing stakes that a mouse isn't going to care about. Right. Like it, I, they don't have to worry about their finances, the, their family, making sure the kids get to school on time, right. Their physical health, like all of these other things that we're able to like 
compound and stress out over together. Uh, so are there people starting to do research on other like human studies for burnout that could I don't know, start shedding some more light on, on how that's going to work? Yeah. And, you know, on, on the, it's all kind of, if you will, from a 50,000 foot level, whereas all that molecular stuff that I was talking about, that's, you know, you get that out of, out of mice and rats or sometimes autopsy studies on human beings. But at the 50,000 foot level, we have these special MRIs that we call functional MRIs and diffusion tensor MRIs and stuff, where we can look at communications in the brain and various areas of the brain and what lights up and what takes off. Um, but, uh, but again, you're looking at millions of nerve cells at that point, not singular or small areas. But in those situations uh, with burnout, it seems to be uh, mimicking depression, which isn't a big surprise because uh, certainly uh, in certain populations, burnout can lead to more fixed uh, and and profound depression and anxiety states for sure. Right. So I guess what are some of the ways, once, once you start noticing burnout coming on, right, what are some of the things that you could be doing in order to mitigate the the impact, you know, just or blunt some of those uh, effects that you're going to start feeling so that you either can prolong, go through whatever you're trying to work through at the time until you get to that, you know, vacation or rest period, uh, or just to be able to lead a more sustainable life. Yeah, it's a big question of, you know, of which uh, I, I wrote three books on it in that, um, uh, and, and not and not to sound like a, a wise ass about that. Uh, what I mean is, I'm not going to be able to give you a, a, a complete distillation. So I'm going to give you some highlights uh, if I can. Yeah. If I can, um, I think uh, we have to start um, kind of from a very basic level, uh, and it's what we what we call self compassion and self care. And that is, I think when we get into these loops, like, you know, you're talking about, and we get into our jobs, we get into maybe a stressful home situation, or, you know, we're upset about the kids or worried about the kids or, uh, you know, or at work, you know, uh, the the boss is on us, or we have a million things to do all at once. Um, What happens is we, we tend to uh, very much focus on our external environments and the people around us. And we lose track uh, very quickly of ourselves, uh, how we're doing, what, 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 is, what is stressing us, what is bringing us uh, you know, some, some happiness, some pleasure, some excitement, some enthrallment, some uh, engagement. Uh, we, we very quickly just completely shift out of that mode of, of, of uh, thinking about ourselves to the point, as a matter of fact, that we often will feel guilty if we start thinking about, well, where am I? How am I feeling today? Am I, am I down or up? What, what's going on in, in here as opposed to on around us? I know that was, that was really big in, in our field. You know, you, you're always supposed to be focused on the patient, the patient, the patient, of course, and, and of course you are, but um, if you completely defocus from yourself, it's going to be very hard to uh, care for yourself. So one of the first things that we say is, you know, you have to grant yourself permission periodically 
to, to take your pulse, if you will, to see where am I? How am I feeling? What's, what's bringing me up? What's bringing me down? Uh, is, are things going in the right direction or am I just spiraling out of control? Uh, it's even, you know, and even take that step backwards, like we said, and imagine people looking at you from, you know, through a, a TV camera. Am I, am, am I going through my day the way I would want to, or am I just, you know, dragging myself down and everybody around me. Uh, but every so often to, to give your grant yourself permission to do that, get a fix on yourself. And then the, the, the corollary to it is it matters nothing if you don't commit to saying to yourself, okay, I'm going to take care of some of this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to attack what I need to, to start bringing myself back in line with where I want to be. Another uh, analogy that I think I, I like a lot is the idea that we all kind of have a energy bank in us, if you will. You can call it psychic or emotional energy, whatever it is that, that you have that allows you to go through your day, that gets you up and gets you to work and gets you taking on things and then go into the kids' ball game and all that sort of thing. It takes a certain amount of energy and we all have a bank of it. And everything we experience in our days either make a deposit in that bank or they make a withdrawal. And so one of the one of the things to do, you know, right off the bat is to start figuring out what does make the deposits and what makes the withdrawals, some of which you can control, some of which you can't. But, you know, you might want to start seeking out the things that are making the deposits and start seeing if you can start, you know, at least modifying the things that are making the withdrawals. Yeah. So. All right, you might not have an answer to this one, so I'm, I'm going to throw it out anyways. Something that I've often wondered is how much any of my burnout has just been from decision fatigue, where like you know I'm just making so many decisions during the day that I burn out much faster because I'm constantly processing and having to think through everything. And so I took some steps to you know habituate certain parts of my day to not have to make certain decisions, and I found it's much easier to kind of sustain uh, like a, a higher tempo, I guess, for my work life uh, than I could maintain before when I was doing everything. I don't know, is that something you've seen as like a, a potential thing where decision fatigue can actually directly correlate to how fast you feel burnout? Yeah, I would, you know, I would certainly think so. And just one corollary to this is that, you know, what burns you at, what burns me at may be two different things. Um, and there, And the flip side of that is what helps us you know, what helps me may not help for the next person down the line. Um, so, you know, a lot of this has to be trial and error. There is no prescription we can write, and this is going to get rid of burnout. But certainly we are aware of uh, many of the common stressors. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I think decision fatigue in a setting of, of multitasking, uh, we're not, our brains aren't really dis designed to multitask. We're, you know, it's pretty much designed to take on one thing at another. It may work on other things, but our focus, our actual focus is going to be on, on one thing at another. But we're in an environment where our doggone phones are going off every second, you know, and emails are coming in and texts are coming in, instant messages, and then somebody's knocking on the door and, and asking you questions. Um, and, and it can mount up very fast. And particularly, you know, it's interesting 
frequent, fast, multiple decision-making is not necessarily the driver as opposed to frequent, fast, multiple decision-making in a situation where your control is, is limited. You know, if I have control over everything and I can say, okay, yeah, do this. Okay. Yeah. Do that. Okay. Do this. And it all comes to pass. That's fine. But if half the time you have a sense that it's not making any impact, then that's going to drag you down much much faster. But as as you said, you already took you already created a strategy, and that is you figured out a way maybe to bundle some of the things that you don't need to tackle immediately or that you can automate. Um, and so there are multiple strategies for doing this. One of the things, for example, uh, you know, it, you you're not going to get away with this in all situations, but. I, in the middle of all my neurosurgery, I turned off all alarms other than my phone. And that, and the thing was, if you want me, if you know, if you really need me, you call me. Otherwise, I'll get to my texts, I'll get to my emails at certain parts of the day. So they're all just put together in one bank, and I'll get to them when I get to them. But if it's an emergency, then, then you use the phone. Uh, so I've, you know, I've already created a way of, of keeping that, that bombardment, uh, limited. Another way is, you know, there's this four square way of simply breaking down, you know, your tasks in your day to the things that are critical and, and immediate versus not critical and not immediate at all. And then the in-betweens, um, and, and that's another way that, you know, we, we can, start organizing our days if we're in that type of environment of just uh, of decision overload, if you will. Right. Another huge tip for any listeners. I started using uh, Motion, which is an AI-based calendar tool. And now on Sundays, I just I put every task that I need to do during the week and it reviews all of my meetings and it fits those tasks in between the meetings uh, based on how it flows. And if I miss one of them, so we got busy, it'll just push it further into my my week. Uh, but I don't have to think about my, my workload anymore. I just sit down at my desk in the morning and it's all lined up for me. Uh, and Chris, I would argue, I mean, I, we are big advocates of, uh, for the idea of schedules when people feel multi, <clears throat> excuse me, when they feel multitask. Um, but I would argue, first of all, in that schedule, for example, that you schedule in breaks, um, you know, intermittent breaks through the day, even just a few minutes of peace, a few minutes of whatever brings you peace, you know, and brings you a little bit of whatever you want to call it, mindfulness or whatever. And if you can even step outside and get some sunset and some, I mean, sunlight and fresh air, it can go a million miles. But also, as we were talking about our home lives earlier, um, what we found, because, you know, our, for example, my residents were working 80 hour weeks, um, as was I, um, you can, you can do that with your home life as well, to a certain degree. And I don't want us to be OCD about it, but, you know, to be able to say, you know, these, these hours on these three days a week, they're, they're going to family time, date time, uh, you know, going out for dinner time, whatever it is. Um, you know, put a put a line in the sand and say this is going to be used for uh, my family, my friends, and that sort of thing. Yep. No, I definitely do it. And even just adding a, I put a task in called the moment of presence. It's literally just 
couple minutes, but just wherever I am at the time when that pops up, it's just like, try to be present. Like, it's really hard if you are, you know, drinking your coffee or just taking a sip of water. If you really focus on what you're doing in the moment, it's really hard to remember other things are happening around you, right? Just like feeling the ice water going down, like down your body, hitting your stomach, just like being there. It really does reset you. And so, um, I guess following this kind of stream of, of thought here, are there, there any other recommendations you would have for people to kind of unplug from work in order to regain some of their, uh, I don't know if composure is the right word, but their mental faculties, right. To be able to show up at work, uh, even better. Yeah, I, I I think again the the whole notion of breaks uh, is really important, and and again I think you have to find what works for you. Uh, where I I've tried the techniques you were talking about, it's never worked for me, and yet for the next person it may work uh, very well. For me, uh, just to be able to literally breathe some fresh air, open a door and step out for half a minute uh, would go a long way, or just sit over a cup of coffee. And, and as you say, let the world go, go by me, uh, went better for me. Um, but I think again, these, this idea of creating schedules and, and really making sure that you take those times, I think again, uh, picturing yourself in that environment and thinking of how do I look and how do I want to be, um, and, and, you know, the, the old stopping and, and, periodically engaging. I, here's another thing that, that I, we found was kind of interesting in our world, at least. Um, there was a tremendous sense uh, amongst uh, people in healthcare of loneliness at work. And you're like, loneliness? How can you be lonely? You spend your entire day surrounded by people, talking to people nonstop all day long. Um, and yet, you know, if you really boil it down, all those interactions are kind of transactional. They're, I need this done. I need that done. I, this information's coming in. I'm going to act on that information. We did an interesting a little study with our team at one point, and we just asked them for the two people that they worked closest with. Um, could they give us certain details about their home lives? Just, are they married? What do they do on weekends? Do they have kids? Stuff like that. And our, our team uniformly failed. And it's because all interactions had been boiled down to this, you know, extreme efficiency, as opposed to periodically actually relating to each other as people, stopping and talking and learning a little bit about each other and sharing you know, something amusing or something interesting. Uh, and so one of the big drivers of resilience is certainly uh, just is real human interaction and uh, maintaining relationships that matter to you and all. And if we go through our day, just basically not engaging as human beings, just as machines, uh, you know, we're bound to feel that kind of loneliness and that sense of isolation. Mm -hmm. Are there any other like organizational kind of changes that either you've put in place or that, you know, you've recommended others do that help with burnout? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I've seen plenty of organizations, uh, 
you know, bring in a few puppies a couple <laughs> couple times a year and have people pet the puppies. Uh, and I say this cynically because what's happened is burnout has at least been acknowledged. And in the medical world, for example, um, the, there's an overseeing body to the training programs called the ACGME, and it's mandated resilience training or wellness training. But, you know, there, there's a lot of cynicism that gets picked up in this. And by the way, I think supreme cynicism about burnout may be a sign of burnout, actually. But, uh, uh, but you know, literally doing things like bringing in puppies for people to pet, where, you know, that's not going to solve a lot of things per, per se. You know, step one, I, I might say they, they might pay more. Uh, you know, truly show the value of your employees. Let the employees know it. Um, you are in the military. You can relate uh, to this one, though. It, you know, beyond beyond paying our our people more. Um, when when I was at Walter Reed for a while, there there was uh, a new general came on board, and uh, I used to park right out front of the hospital because we got there at you know five in the morning, and so we were the first people there, and. Um, and uh, instead, the, the general painted the whole front section of the hospital parking in black with stars on it, and only the general staff and general could park there. Okay, no big deal. And and every so often, the general would you know come and make rounds in the hospital, but it would be telegraphed weeks ahead of time. You would be notified, and everybody was supposed to be standing there all pressed and you know, yes, sir, everything's going great, sir, perfect, sir, couldn't be better, sir. And then you know, off this entourage of the general and ten people with clipboards would would march march through. Well, another general came along after a while and complete opposite. Uh, you would appear out of nowhere in the middle of the night, you'd be on call and you'd be, you know, hunched over some, some patient or some chart and he'd come by and how's it going? And you'd all of a sudden realize who it was. He'd have no entourage and he'd say, no, really, how's it going? And you're going, well, sir, it, it's going pretty well. And he goes, what, what, what do you need to make your job easier? And if you were brave enough, you might actually tell them. Um, and and that was a real sign of engagement, right? That of leadership engagement, of of actually listening, which allows your people to feel listened to, whether they can act upon it or not, who knows? But at least you know you knew they were making the effort, and you and you were being here, you were being heard. Uh, and so those would be, to me, would be prime examples of how uh, an institution can tackle this. And then obviously, you know, you, what often gets what happens again in my world, but I know it happens everywhere is you get staffed to, you know, average output or maybe even slightly below average output. And then there's a wave of business, if you will. In my world, it's a wave of sick, you know, and injured. Um, but you're not staffed. There's no redundancy staffing where, uh, you know, where you're set up to absorb these pulses, these large pulses of business. You're, you're actually understaffed and therefore all the stress level goes up immediately. Whereas, uh, you know, certain, certain businesses and certain, uh, you know, even in healthcare have figured out, no, wait, we have to, ha we have to be able to have 
you know, it's so what if a few people are, are working a little slow, uh, they're ready for, you know, if there's a series of emergencies or, you know, flu season is coming by or now COVID yeah. season is coming by and that sort of thing. Gotcha. So, yeah, there are plenty of things yeah. institutions can do. And they are, some are starting to get it. Some aren't. Yeah. That's as with most things. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but awesome. All right. I want to move into uh, the final three questions, which uh, first one, actually, I'm going to prep on this one. If, if anyone wants to grab a copy of Death's Pale Flag, which is your fiction book, uh, very enjoyable read so far. I'm not all the way through it, but, uh, but it's been entertaining. I'm getting, you've, you offer a lot of insights into what neurosurgery actually is uh, and like the descriptions are awesome like i did not realize the level of detail um and obviously it's brain surgery right like there's gonna be a level <laughs> of detail but when you're reading about it and actually hearing these parts you're like wow um and then there's another element that i won't spoil for anybody that gets added to the the story to make it uh even more exciting um but separate from your book uh and, and you have <laughs> written nonfiction books uh what book what book would you recommend everyone read oh my gosh it, it, you know i i I I think uh, with with my book, for example, I, I I eventually decided on on fiction instead of nonfiction um, because I think um, it can be very immersive. Um, and sometimes when you write when you write nonfiction, it almost feels like a book report, and I think it almost reads like a book report. Um, and so if yeah, and so if I were if I were to go, I probably just go with some of my favorite fiction books, even though I tend to read a lot of nonfiction history and all that sort of thing. Um, but there's a few and they're all World War II books for some reason, but there's, you, I'm, I'm sure you know, The Cane Mutiny uh, by Herman Wauk. Uh, there's a book called The Last Convertible, um, which is also basically, it's not entirely a World War II book, but it's, it's just beautifully written um and then there's uh one called a piece of cake which uh is uh is definitely world war ii it's about the fighter pilots uh in the battle of britain um but i because i think because of the setting world war ii and just how intense everything is uh i think the life lessons in all of these are 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 fantastic you really can open your eyes uh, even just, you know, just like the, the last one, a piece of cake about these RAF fighter pilots. I know, you know, it, it caused quite a stir when it came out. It came out many years ago, but it, it showed the fighter pilots with, uh, you know, kind of with their warts. It, it, they, they weren't these heroic figures, you know, and, and constantly, you know, nothing could, uh, upset or, or scare them. No, they were kids. Uh, who you know went up terrified at times, um, which only to me made them more heroic. You know, knowing that you can die, being terrified of what you know, being shot to pieces, and still doing it is is to me the, the you know the whole idea of heroism. So anyway, I guess I would give those because they're just amazing books. What's next for you professionally? 
Uh, well, uh, my wife it tells me that I'm working just as hard as I did when I was uh, operating, and but I'm not getting paid for it. So I don't know. Maybe I'll find somebody somebody who wants to pay me. But uh, no, I, I I'm doing a lot of teaching of undergrads and med students right now. I'm enjoying the the heck out of that, and then uh, continuing to write. I have two or three more uh, two or three more fiction books that are at least started. Uh, one's basically finished. I'm just rewriting. So I guess a lot of writing as well. Awesome. And then finally, where can people find you? Uh, The uh, easiest place, you know, I'm on all the social media, I guess, anymore, but the easiest place, I have my own website and it's just my name, Gary R. Simmons, S-I-M-O-N-D-S, Gary R. Simmons.com. Awesome. All right, Gary, thank you for joining me. Chris, it's my pleasure. Uh, What a delight. I very much appreciate you letting me ramble. Yeah, no, it was a very insightful episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would love a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. And for more information on how to build effective and efficient teams through your leadership, visit leadingforeffect.com. As always, deserve it.